The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime. Hello, it's The Week in Art. I'm Ben Luke. This week, two festivals of art. We talk to the Gorilla Girls about their billboards for Art Night in the UK, and I'm in Scotland for Glasgow International. Amy Dawson talks to Frida Kahlo and Kata Kolvitz of The Gorilla Girls, and I talk to Richard Parry, the director of Glasgow International, or GI, and then Louisa Buck and I discuss the key shows and commissions. And in this week's Work of the Week, I talk to Samantha Friedman, a curator of the Museum of Modern Art in New York's Cezanne Drawing Show, about a study sheet of pencil sketches by the French artist. Before all that, a new series of our sister podcast, A Brush With, featuring in-depth conversations with some of the great artists of our time, has just begun. The first episode of the new series is A Brush With Michael Rakowitz. You can listen to that and subscribe to hear our archive of conversations and future episodes at Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you're listening now. Now, over recent years, London has had a one-evening-only event called Art Night, featuring commissions in various districts of the city. But this year, for its fifth edition, Art Night has effectively become Art Month and extended across the UK and internationally through an online programme. The event this year takes place from the 18th of June to the 18th of July. Among the key commissions for Art Night is a series of billboards across the UK by the feminist collective Gorilla Girls, titled The Male Greys. The works will be shown in public sites across the month and address the Gorilla Girls' concerns over the last four decades, gender imbalance, representation and discrimination. Amy Dawson, Deputy Digital Editor at The Art Newspaper, spoke to the Gorilla Girls' Frida Kahlo and Kata Kolvitz. So thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. And boy, oh boy, or should I say, girl, oh girl, it has been a year. With all the social and political uprisings from Black Lives Matter movements to artists being arrested in protests over leaderships in Russia, America, Hong Kong, to name but a few, there has been a lot to shout about recently. So my question first is, has this been an exceptionally busy time for the Guerrilla Girls? Actually, it has. You would think during the pandemic where we're all working virtually, not together, things would have slowed down. But as you know, we have this big art night project launching next week, and we've still had exhibitions mostly virtual all over the place. And our activism never stops. We've been doing a lot of recent work against all kinds of museum issues, museum corruption, and and things like that. So you're right. There's so many problems right now, so many horrible things going on. But for us activists, that's what we do. We just keep pushing that rock up a hill, trying to make things a little bit better. I think one thing that Uh, explains why we've been so busy is that we've always been virtual. We've always been online. Um, We, of course, did live appearances. We don't do those now, but it's, um, you know, so much of what's going on now in, in terms of protest and dissent happens online as well. And we've always been, you know, working those, you know, working that routine. Yeah. And I wanted to ask, do you think that art activism is kind of becoming more mainstream these days? We see so much uh, protesting at museums about toxic philanthropy like the Sacklers or oil sponsorship or more recently kind of issues on race and class and unionising. So do you feel like there are people joining your ranks increasingly? Absolutely. I think it's time to turn everyone's eyes towards the structure of the art world. We're looking at uh, structural racism, sexism in, you know, in other worlds and other realms. And uh, the art world was just ripe for it because it's sort of been running as a sort of upper middle class uh, party for a long time. And uh, if we really believe in democratic societies, the art world should also be democratic for too long, too few people have been making decisions about you know what our visual culture will be uh, remembered as there's a fantastic long history of political art and we feel proud to be part of that but so many artists today are part of that and so many in every era it's just that that kind of work is not always the kind of work that sells for millions of dollars and is bought by billionaires and donated to museums 
Um, one of the things that we covered was a, a group of art protesters in Poland a few years ago who named themselves the Bison Ladies, which I just absolutely love. Um, I wondered, do you get many kind of copycat groups and are you in touch with any, any of them? Is it like a network or are you all standalone? Uh, we hear from some of them, uh, but not all of them. And we always encourage them to find their own crazy names, like the, the Bison Girls. That's great. You know, the world needs more feminist masked Avenger groups, not just the Gorilla Girls. And, you know, we welcome them all. And are you ever recruiting? I'm asking for a friend, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, the dirty little secret of the Gorilla Girls is that while 60 very diverse individuals have been members over the years, at any one time we've been pretty small because we have to function as one artist, no matter how many bodies we are. And you couldn't possibly do the kind of work we do in a huge group. And because of that, sadly, we wish everyone could be a Gorilla Girl. Um, we've never had any kind of open membership. We kind of created a new kind of political art. We wanted to be convincing. We wanted to uh, change people's minds, use strategies of advertising, disruptive headlines, crazy visuals. And a cell is a lot better bunch of people to create work like that than 100 people, 50 people, etc. Could Could I give you some advice to tell your friend? Of course. She doesn't need us or he. You know, they can find their own crazy groups and do work like we do, but they don't need us to protest and to complain. <laughs> so one of the things that you were just mentioning before and um, something that you said to uh, the art newspaper last time we spoke to you a few years ago was that you were targeting kind of private museums in particular for their role in allowing exceptionally rich people in a very small you know, 1% minority uh, to avoid taxes, but look like excellent philanthropists and potentially whilst inflicting their white male centric collections on the general public. Is that still your main bugbear or now with everything that's going on, has your gaze moved? We've always been very concerned with all kinds of human rights, human rights for all. We're intersectional feminists who believe in that. And uh, we're also very concerned with the tremendous income inequality in the world where most people are struggling to get by and then more and more countries, societies, et cetera, are run by the super wealthy who kind of take all the money for themselves and don't pay people a living wage. So we've long done work about this and about the ethics of those rich people having so much control in museums. Now in the UK, museums are mostly public. In the US, museums don't get public money. So these people who sit on the board, and of course, some of them care about art the way we all do and, and are not those nefarious people, but other ones are arms dealers, uh, sexual abusers, you know, drug company, uh, pushing drugs on um, people. And those people should not be on the boards of museums. A museum is about giving people so a world to think about, a world of ideas, a world of visuals or, or in so many different ways. It can't be beholden to these billionaires. I would also say that you can trace many of the things um, the injustices in the world, you know, sexual abuse, racism, Black Lives Matter, you can trace that back to income inequality and to the lack of um, access to resources. So I sort of see it all as under the same umbrella. And one of the kind of trends, I guess, uh, if you could call it that, in these guerrilla um, campaigning in the art world is um, kind of a move onto social media and there's increasing amounts of accounts that anonymously call out reported injustices from the industry. Do you think that this is a big step forward to improving kind of unfair conditions and treatment or do you think it's a kind of vigilante justice that could be quite dangerous? Right now it's it's everything. We are in favour of that. 
And, and these are not all anonymous. There are many people telling their stories and using their own names too. And it's really important to hear those stories. So for Art Night, we've been collecting and researching a lot of these stories. And one of the parts of our Art Night uh, project, which is called the male grays, you know, art historians call it the male gaze. We call it the male grays, chomping on culture, people, et cetera, um, sexual abuse, et cetera. So we've been collecting a lot of stories. We think it's really time, like so many people do, for these stories to be told. And those will, in our own crazy style, be part of this new project. I'm going to ask you a little bit more about the Art Night project in a little bit. But first, I wanted to ask you about the market for female artists because especially early on in your campaigning it was about the lack of women in museums and being sold in galleries do you feel that now there's been an improvement for female artists in general or is it just for kind of the big name female artists because on the surface there seems to be a lot more artists in auctions or being shown in commercial and public galleries but when you look closer, do you feel like there's been a real marked improvement? Well, there's been a change in consciousness. I think no one would say that you can have an art collection uh, that's of any significance without work by women and artists of color. But the art market is really about winners and losers, not about history or culture. And it, it tends to drop it all down to the, the winners and the winners get everything. And um, that's really a lousy way to tell history. And yes, women and artists of color have been embraced by the market, but there is a kind of tokenizing effect where a few of them you know, are sort of uh, shown and promoted and get a ton of money, you know, like the white guys do. But it leaves so many people out, you know, we. We say that the art world isn't, you know, culture isn't an Olympics of winners and losers. That's really an extension of capitalism. And that culture is a much broader thing than that. And the, and the sad thing is many museum collections are based on what sells in the marketplace. Uh, and we really think that uh, museums should have more courage than, you know, than that. And we, we challenge them to look past that because if you wrote the history of literature only about the best-selling novels, it would just all be about romance novels and sci-fi or you know whatever. It's really not a very uh, broad or rich way of evaluating and preserving culture. I have to ask you about the elephant in all art rooms these days, which is NFTs. They're obviously brandishing this idea that they're so much better for the artists. You know, they get so much more of their of the money through the sales into the future through resales. They have more control over their own market. Do you think that they're good? Do you have a particular opinion about them? Well, we've been asked many times since this uh, phenom began to be part of this, but we're in favor of our work being cheap. You know, anyone can buy a poster for 30 bucks and uh, we, we prefer it that way. So we have said no. But as for artists trying to make a living, of course they need to try to make a living and almost none do. And what's scary about NFTs is they seem to be modeling the whole ridiculous art world where it's all about elevating the few and throwing everyone else out based on whose work is cost the most money. We're, we live in a society where there's so many fantastic artists. There's no lack of great art out there, but only a few get anointed and make money at all. So, um, you know, not just make, make tons of money. So NFT seems to just becoming another instrument like rich people use art as an investment instrument. You know, who needs that? What we need is what we're lucky to have, artists. And the fact that if an artist is successful or not, most of them keep on working. And that's why 
we have such an incredible culture and such incredible work. We're lucky that no matter what the odds, they keep on doing really interesting, game-changing, mind-changing art. So let's move on and talk about your commission for Art Night. I love the name, The Male Greys. So Art Night this year is normally in London. It was postponed last year because of the pandemic. And this time it's going to be out across the UK, which is really exciting. And one of the elements of your project, which has a few different things going on, are these huge billboards, right? Can you tell me a little bit about what we can expect to see popping up? Well, the billboards are about encouraging viewers in various parts of the UK to go to their local museums and count the number of naked women and the number of women artists uh, in the collections and to send it to us and we'll tabulate it and uh, just see what we get. You know, the idea that women for a long time have been in artworks, usually as naked bodies, uh, but rarely as artists, brings up a huge, you know, question, you know, about um, subjective versus objective, um, subject versus object. And we really believe that there is an element of sexism in the subject of many, many, many artworks, Western artworks, that it's right there in the artwork. And we want to sort of open up that, that conversation so that you can't see a reclining nude by Rubens without saying, wait a minute, you know, that's not just beautiful flesh, that's women being objectified. And that reclining nude is idle. She's not doing anything. She's just being there uh, serving as eye candy. And I think it would be great if, you know, people went into the museum. We're not meaning to moralize or censor anything, but if they go into the museum and they realize that when they see the painting, rather than just reducing it to a lot of beautiful, you know, colored shapes on canvas. You know, we love doing interactive things. We love, we complain. We like to give everyone a chance to complain, including a few years ago at Tate Modern, we did the first of, of many Gorilla Girls complaints department and thousands of people came to complain. We had chalkboards and all kinds of ways that they could stick things up about any subject they wanted to take on. And it was amazing to see them do it. So this is a chance not just to look at you know the work we've done about this, but go to your local institution and just see what's on the walls. Just do it like we do, like we've always done since our uh, do women have to be naked to get into the Met Museum poster in 1989? Are there more naked women than women artists in UK museums? Let us know. And we have an ever-changing bar graph on the website, themalegrays.com, which um, as soon as you input, you can input your results there and it'll appear right on the bar and also the institution you went to and your count. You don't need your name or anything. Just, just your statistics will appear on the website too. So you can see what other people are doing and, and, and compare. And we'll see what the results are. We have no idea. That's going to be fascinating. So many people think that museums are places where you go and silently appreciate. Whereas we think that museums, because they're really presenting culture, which is a living thing, they should be sites for disputation and for argument and for critical thinking rather than just appreciation. Totally, it'll be fascinating to see how that changes over the month. So another part of your project is that you're gonna be hosting an online event on the 26th of June. Can you tell us what we can expect? Well, we do talks all over the world and it's really fantastic to different audiences, different people. The virtual events are incredible because thousands of people can join and I hope they will and sometimes they do. So what we talk about is the ideas in our work, how we craft our work, what we care about. So it's partly kind of a how-to going through our decades of work and showing how we've changed our strategies, expanded our strategies, always trying to tell people something they didn't know before in the hope of changing their minds. It'll be fun. It'll be crazy. There's a lot of crazy stuff in there. And it's kind of wonderful that 
we have this crazy trajectory of taking on issues over and over again at different times. And you'll see how it, how it evolves and people can compare that to their own life, which is true for all of us in any field. We're always moving our thought process, our, our, you know, our issues, what we care about, what we fight against. We're always moving that forward. And um, one of the things that I loved from a previous interview you did with us was you said that when it comes to kind of choosing where to go next, what topic to look at next, you guys are just hormonal and you just follow whatever pisses you off. So uh, I guess one of my last questions is what is currently pissing you off? What will be pissing you off in the future? What can we expect from you next? Well, we're really focused on the composition of museum boards in the United States and the idea that uh, if we're stuck with a system in the richest country in the world where culture has to be financed by the super rich, we believe that museum boards should be people who make the world a better place, not a worse place. And right now, on the Museum of Modern Art Board, for example, there are two friend, close friends of Jeffrey Epstein. There's someone who makes all his money from uh, for-profit prisons, another who makes his money securitizing student debt. And now it's come out that another board member is the head of a company that is polluting the world with his gold mines. And we, we ask the question, why should these people be allowed to art wash their reputations um, with donations to culture. Well, I look forward to seeing what your next project will be on that. Um, my final question is a big one. Do you think that the pandemic has or will change the art world for good? Or do you think that after all of this, it will be business as usual? I think the art world has a big responsibility to change for good. I'm not sure how much of an effect the pandemic will have. But we have artists doing incredible work, particularly right now, protest art, you know, of all kinds. And it's done inside museums, it's done outside museums, and we need more of it. So if anything is to be the effect of all of these um, protests, demonstrations, um, um, works, incredibly creative, convincing works of different kinds than you see on the streets and everywhere else. That's what we hope continues even, even stronger than ever. And beyond that, museums, besides changing their system, as Frida said, they need to cast a wider net and collect the real story of our culture. Right now, they have, you know, almost all still because of their historic collections, white male artists. That is not the art of our time and it wasn't the art of any time. So they have a lot of catching up to do and they better get with it. I know they want to, they're trying to, but it's really hard to change something like a museum. And I, I might add that one thing that has changed that I hope is a permanent change, and it's probably hard for you in the UK to imagine this, but very few museums in the United States are unionized. And there's a big push now to unionize uh, employees in museums because many of the employees are making barely a uh, minimum wage, which in the United States is not a living wage, and they get no benefits. Meanwhile, you know, billionaires uh, get all kinds of tax benefits for being, you know, a trustee or making um, contributions to the museum. So hopefully, and, and many museums are not going into this uh, willingly. They're kicking and screaming and trying to limit the unions in every way they can. However, the movement is in place and it's not going away. Well, that's great. Thanks so much for joining me and sharing your wisdom and more power to you. Thank you. Great to talk to you. The Gorilla Girls, The Male Greys, will appear in various UK venues, including Dundee Contemporary Arts, G39 in Cardiff, The Tetley in Leeds, and Town at Eastbourne. To find out more about that and all the other Art Night events between the 18th of June and the 18th of July, visit artnight.london.
Coming up, we explore the Glasgow International Festival and talk about Cezanne's drawings in New York. But first, here are a few of the top stories on our website this week. The Venice Biennale for Art, which will open next year after a COVID-19 delay, announced the title and theme of its main exhibition this week, as Jose de Silva writes. The Milk of Dreams, as the exhibition will be called, is inspired by a children's book by the surrealist artist Leonora Carrington, which includes a man with wings instead of ears and a two-faced character called Senor Mustache Mustache. Cecilia Alemani, the artistic director and curator of the Biennale's main exhibition, said that Carrington's stories describe a world set free, brimming with possibilities. But the book is also the allegory of a century that imposed intolerable pressure on the individual. The Biennale is due to run between the 23rd of April and the 7th of November 2022. Joining recent moves by European museums to return African art, and particularly the Benin Bronzes, to Nigeria, the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York announced that it's sending three objects back to the country. As Helen Stoilus reports, two of the works, a pair of 16th century Benin court brass plaques of a warrior chief and junior court official, were donated to the museum in 1991 by the modern art dealer Klaus Perls and his wife Dolly, while a third, a 14th century Ife head, was recently offered to the museum for purchase by another collector. The museum decided to return the works after conducting research in collaboration with the British Museum, with input from the Nigerian National Commission for Museums and Monuments. To hear more about the Benin Bronzes, listen to our podcast from the 27th of November 2020 and 26th of March of this year. Art dealers, advisors, auctioneers and others who sell art in the UK had to register with Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs, or HMRC, the Department of the UK Government responsible for the collection of taxes, for anti-money laundering supervision this week. As Anna Brady writes, those who fail to do so risk civil penalties or criminal prosecution under the European Union's Fifth Money Laundering Directive, designed to combat financial crime and terrorist funding. However, artists who sell their own work direct to clients are not subject to the regulations. Find out everything you need to know about the legislation and read more about all these stories at theartnewspaper.com or on our app for iPhone and iPad, which you can get from the App Store. We'll be back after this. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. This summer, Christie's London plays host to the Roger Federer Collection, serving up two unique auctions of the tennis star's personal sporting memorabilia to support the Roger Federer Foundation. The collection celebrates Roger Federer's historic achievements on the court, with 20 lots from his Grand Slam victories offered during a live auction on the 23rd of June. From a racket used in his fabled tussle with Rafael Nadal at Wimbledon in 2007 to the clay-covered shoes from his win at Roland Garros in 2009, these items provide a window into some of the sport's most iconic moments. The corresponding online sale chronicles Federer's incredible career from the early 2000s right through to 2021, affording fans across the globe the opportunity to own a momentous object from his journey to date. Visit the flagship exhibition for the Roger Federer collection at Christie's London from the 21st of June and find out more on christies.com. Welcome back. Now, Glasgow International, or GI, is another of those biannual events that was forced to delay its latest incarnation by the coronavirus pandemic. The festival, described by its organisers as a crescendo in the creative rhythm of Scotland's most populous city, opened at last this week, and over the next 17 days features more than 73 exhibitions and events by more than 100 artists across a series of commissions and the related shows and interventions known as the Across the City programme. I spoke to Richard Parry, the director of the festival, about the effect of that delay on the event, and then to Louisa Buck, the art newspaper's contemporary art correspondent, about what she thought of the works in this year's programme. Richard, to begin with, let's talk about your theme, attention. Now, you had this theme before COVID hit. Has it changed? It's still called the same thing, but has the nature of the festival changed because of what's happened in the last year? Yeah, it's been a real journey. We first came up with the theme of attention around three years ago. And when we started out on that, we were thinking about things like the attention economy. And so that's, for instance, how in the age of smartphones, we are constantly looking at our screen and that kind of fight for attention that we have through social media and things like the feed. And so we were thinking about that, but we were also thinking about how attention might function as an approach or a methodology both for curating making art but also looking rigorously at art as well Uh, so we had those thoughts together with things like care how you tend to people there's several things about this which are important so firstly there's there's the whole situation of needing to do a massive about turn 
six weeks from when the festival in 2020 was due to take place. So we had to take a series of what at the time were very big decisions very quickly. So firstly, that we weren't going to do it that year. Um, secondly, that we were going to postpone it and not cancel entirely. And then thirdly, it was about how we support the artists and the, the projects that are part of the community of, of artists making work in the city that we were working with. So it, it was all of those things. And then about the simple practicalities of restaging the festival. So we spent the first, I guess, sort of nine months or so fundraising to get to a point and then the latter months have been about sort of doing it but in the process of all of that the theme itself attention has shifted so not only has the whole festival shifted but actually I think some of the emphasis has changed as well so for instance you know you've had things like the events in the wake of the murder of George Floyd and how I think that's raised a lot of questions for many people around who are we paying attention to? Who are people not paying attention to? And what, what news stories do we see? What news stories do we not see? Those sorts of questions. And I really feel this, this question of, of attending to people has been massive over this last year. You know, whether that's the people that you live with or the people that we, we've been separated from as well. And just looking after each other. And I think you know, that's one of the things about the festival that's really kind of palpably come through is that it's about a, a community of artists and makers and curators and, and people who are professionals and are making art. And, and it really is a city of production. But that, that thing that everybody's interdependent in some way has been a very palpable thing that's, that's come forward. And over the past year, it's really emphasized this sense of a, of a community and the independency between each of us and within that what the festival does in terms of it being a moment of bringing people together like what makes a festival a festival you know yes it's lots of exhibitions but it's it's the conversation between those exhibitions it's when you see the more famous artists in perhaps the bigger institutions showing alongside really young artists maybe only recently graduated from art school or perhaps even haven't been to art school and that are showing and you see the full gamut, and, and it's the whole city, this incredible centre of production for contemporary art. I mean, probably more densely populated with artists than any other city, I would say, in some respect. That, that's, that's put out there to the public, and it's, and it's kind of showing what it does as a, as a place where, where art is made and shown. It's, it's also surely about the nature of the conversations that happen when people encounter the work. A, a festival needs a sort of an atmosphere around it which is provided by the audience, right? And, and until recently, you can't have known that that would happen. So, so can you plan for a festival where the audience would be restricted in some ways? I mean, as it is, you've got a festival where people can go inside, can congregate inside, which surely is massive. That, that is massive. And you're right. A festival is this moment of coming together and the conversation, the, the hubbub around it and all of that. Things happen in festivals when curators talk to artists or artists talk to artists. And as you say, I mean, we've been on tenterhooks this year about what's going to be possible and what has been possible. We had to plan for lots of different eventualities and one of the eventualities was that nobody could come and that there'd be a full lockdown. Thankfully, we're not in that in that camp obviously another scenario was that it would just be a glasgow-based audience which would have been great to have people come in but obviously we'd have been missing people from outside so as it is we're so we're so excited that that people can come from outside the city certainly from within the uk and scotland to to glasgow so so that's fantastic but as i say in planning all of this we were really thinking about about how we can preserve if that's the right way of putting it or get across this sense of conversation or, or, or even generate some of it. So, for instance, one of the commissions that we've made, which is for our online programme only, is with the artist-filmmaker Amory Copstake, who's worked with a number of other filmmakers to put a film together whereby artists in the programme are talking with other artists and to really, in a sense, I suppose, get across this, this sense not only of the community but also of this festival being a, a place where those kind of conversations happen and that that being such an important part of it uh, and trying to in certain instances put people together with other people who they might not have, have known before so that's a gesture towards that and an exciting thing in the program as well 
I wanted to talk to you about the community because Glasgow is famous for its community of artists. It's a community in which you can stretch the umbilical cord from the from the art school through to the first generation of artists as they begin to show and then as they achieve success. Artists tend to stay here on the whole. Artists tend to communicate across generations. It's famously a city in which, you know, it is an art city. Is that still the case? And is one of the aims of GI to kind of reflect that community, but also kind of extend beyond it? That's exactly it. I think there is a very strong community. And it's interesting what you're saying there about about people staying. I think it does hold artists who come. I think that is important. It also attracts people who, who didn't study at the art school, for instance, as well. And it's really important to say that. And indeed, people who may not have had any formal training at all. So I think you're also right there to say that it facilitates these sorts of conversations. So in normal times, for instance, you could go to a bar and there'd be a Turner Prize winning artist talking to someone who's just graduated, for instance, or still in college. You know, that that kind of thing is is possible. Um, and I think there is this sort of community that you can see the edges of in some respects. And I think there's also a sense of collaboration and support for this collective endeavour of making art, showing art in the city. And I think that's a very strong thing here in Glasgow that, that I feel very regularly. Well, Richard, thank you so much for talking to us. Thanks a lot. Louisa, we are in Kelvin Grove, one of the most august of Glasgow's art institutions, this great encyclopedic museum. Uh, and we're looking at one of the artworks for Glasgow International. It's a work by Franz Lees McGurn, and it's a riot of colour, isn't it? An absolute riot, an explosion of bodies. So painted along a kind of horizontal frieze of glass framed in wood, are these legs, arms, high-heeled shoes. There's a marvellous neon area of, of kicking legs at the top, which apparently is based on a neon she did for a nearby nightclub called Nice and Sleazy. So she's sort of riffing on both both the sort of museum vitrine, which is, of course, here gone completely crazy, but also on a Victorian painting halfway up the stairs um, by Albert Moore of lots of languorous sort of neoclassical ladies called Reading Aloud. Well, she loved this work apparently from childhood, but um, now these languorous ladies are going very kaleidoscopically crazy on this work. And it's um, one of the things about it is that this show we know is called Attention, and actually this is one of those works which slowly evolves the longer you look at it it does reward attention. Absolutely, yes. I'm looking here at a little fragment of a high-heeled shoe, the outline of a baby, apparently her child, who kept it inside from going to nightclubs like Nice and Sleazy. But the more you look, absolutely, with close attention, you see these more of these details coalesce, these body parts. Out of this riot comes a lot of very specific killer detail. And I think it's an interesting theme running through this entire festival is this notion of attention or re-attention, looking closely or re-looking. Indeed. And, and one of the wonderful things is, is how much of a contrast it is to the other paintings that are part of GI, which are downstairs in, in Kelvin Grove, which are by Carol Rose, which are about as opposite as you can get in terms of the world of painting than these. Absolutely. Esteemed painter who died recently, very sadly, but a key part of the Glasgow art scene, a renowned teacher, small, glum landscapes of airfields, car parks, caravans, quarries, no human there but evidently human intervened upon landscape they look like the very opposite to this riot of explosive figures that we're seeing in front of us but actually the closer you look they're actually quite bodily these quiet little landscapes and I love the fact it's an old school show with the drawings that accompany the works and then her notes a vitrine of her books and her notes and just looking inside an artist's head again attention to detail Exactly. I, lo- I love the notes on colour she makes. So there's sort of a list of several colours that she, she's listing for the colour of a roof, which is a, actually a relatively small detail in, in, this, in this really quite expansive image that she created. The roof, the caravan, the colour of the grass around. So these very small, inobtrusive, but oh-so-slow-burning paintings suddenly come more to life with all the background information you get about how they were made. They're lovely in their own right, but again, killer details about what she was thinking of when she was making them and devising them. Now you've been to one of the other sort of big institutions in Glasgow, I haven't been there yet, but um, it's GOMA, and what's at GOMA? Well GOMA, Glasgow Museum of Modern Art um, has Nepsidu 
who, an artist I didn't know, a Canadian Sikh artist, who has taken this opulent, cavernous Victorian interior and run with it with these enormous tapestry works, multimedia, with details from his Sikh culture. It's very much about the beliefs behind Sikh culture, the history, the persecution, but these are opulent, vast tapestries on a scale, if you like, of the big colonial Victorian paintings. They take this interior and they run with it. And it's, it's, there's all these details of bangles and drums and, and tied threads. I mean, massive amounts of different media and different details and key iconography from you know, Sikh beliefs and Sikh rituals. I felt very ignorant, I have to say, about a lot of the information that was in these works and also a great film as well which had the um, wonderful name of Black Hole W-H-O-L-E again about Sikh ritual but a really opulent gorgeous show that taught me a lot but also pleased the eye and again killer details of amazing elements of, of what make up Sikh culture and belief. One of the smaller Glasgow institutions which has really punched above its weight recently, it was nominated for the Museum of the Year for instance, is the Glasgow Women's Library and in a typical fashion there that show by Ingrid Pollard kind of seeps into the institution it emerges from it in interesting ways doesn't it? I mean Ingrid Pollard, a key figure in the black art movement in, in, in England has, has been over several years, she had a long residency there responding to the Lesbian Archive at the Glasgow Women's Library and I mean, just an explosive display of these amazing posters for events, one-off events, but these exquisitely produced posters, um, you know, saying don't call us slags women or women reclaim the streets and just really striking. A lot of them came out of this Lenthal Road workshop in Hackney where she played a key part. There are other um, key figures as well making their appearance there. So it's an archive show, but it's by no means a dusty or a dry one. It's a show that is so relevant now about activism, about reclaiming our rights, you know, the time when our rights are being severely eroded, and the power of creativity to convey these messages comes through loud and clear. It really does, and there's these lovely little audio elements which are sort of embedded in tiny little speakers on the bookshelves, aren't they? That's absolutely it. You press a button, it's set amongst the bookshelves in the library, and you pull out a little photograph, and there is a photograph of the speaker captured either maybe giving a speech at a workshop one of them was a teacher of, of women's manual skills and industrial skills and then there's their contemporary voice talking about the image what the background was and an image of them now and it just again brings to life these are real people these are real issues and they're still here now and you know needing to be addressed and, and closely examined now, you mentioned one film in there, but actually a lot of the works that we've seen so far, but we've by no means covered this whole festival yet, but we've seen quite a lot of work, and, and there is a great deal of moving image work, isn't there? Yes, absolutely. I mean, a moving image work in great venues too. I mean, I'm thinking of Duncan Campbell's amazing sound and, and visual image in the great Barrowland Ballroom, that fantastic place with so many gigs. You walk up the stairs and you see all the posters of the gigs that were there, and you walk into this cavern, still slightly smelling of cigarettes and booze, um, <laughs> amazing evocative space and there is this great screen with odd ambient sounds laughter the flat the flare of a cigarette butt the sound of sort of people's movings it's as if an event's about to take place but it hasn't yet um also gretchen bender has an extraordinary piece i mean she's no longer with us this is a piece from 1987 called total recall which she made using a banks of monitors, screens. I mean, it's a, a, a sensory assault of what was then cutting-edge technology and still really kind of powerfully using the moving image in a really creative way. And I like the way there are these historic works interspersed with brand new commissions. That's right. Cause, and actually, one of the things it's taught us, I think, through looking at so many moving image works is, is about the sort of dexterity, the variety that can be conjured from film and video. When you say film and video, you're not just talking about black box after black box, monitor after monitor. The variety of the ways in which it's displayed and presented is really palpable, isn't it? And nowhere is that more so than a tramway, where yeah. you've got, you know, Jenkins Van Ziel's Machines of Love. I mean, a real extravaganza of horror, where you've got these terrifying, grotesque heads in their vitrines. You go through sort of broken aircraft fuselage. You sit in an aircraft seats surrounded by more portholes and go into this kind of terrible saga of six sort of repellent, ghoulish creatures. They call themselves six scintillating sinners. And it's, it's sex and meltdown and horror and bad behaviour. And I mean, it's this sort of, you know, extravaganza of kind of 
gross out basically well, it is really gross out. It's, it's grotesque as well isn't it i mean it, it was it's really interesting because i think both you and i came out of that work and we're thinking well yeah there's loads of paul mccarthy in there there's maybe a bit, yes, a bit of doctor who <laughs> exactly yeah exactly there's kind of kind of like sort of odd sci-fi references yeah. what i also like was that jenkins turn for words all the way through there with these interesting words popping up sort of flipping through quite quickly sometimes you had to be quick to catch them but they were quite poetic in lots of ways and very leading in terms of the way that they were getting our thought processes going or you then have a very big simple screen of Georgina Starr's Quarantine actually devised before the pandemic and I think she slightly has mixed feelings now that's become so relevant that you can only look at it in a certain way but this is a very kind of slightly kitsch but I mean wonderfully kitsch tongue-in-cheek sort of girl adventure basically this woman who appears on a motorbike she rips off the legs off a sort of sexy series of billboards and then uses that as her sort of weapon another woman then joins her and they go into this kind of you know extraordinary kind of female college of sort of strange etiquette and rituals and but it's all on one screen it's very lush it's very extravagant with an amazing kind of sugary palette of, of sort of visceral strangeness you know and a giant ear feature and all sorts of yeah, strange body the, parts. The ear designed by Paul Noble, of by, course. By her partner, Paul Noble, <laughs> yes. So, you know, got a bit of a married to the mob thing going on there. Um, but, you know, there's this very kind of opulent, but only on one screen. And then, of course, in the big space of the tramway, you've got Martine Sims really striking installation it's a sculptural installation you're made to move around the space by different screens that are hanging on these big metal structures and each screen then animates with really kind of coruscating comments on identity politics on black sitcoms their evolution her experiences in Los Angeles I mean it's an absolute panel plea of issue based but not in any finger wagging kind of way it's immensely sensual very personal and you move through this space yes it's moving image work but it's also so intensely sculptural isn't it that's right and, and as you say that sort of that commitment to new technology that commitment is presented on this sort of purple metal screen and purple is significant color to her among other things because of the of the book the color purple so there's all sorts of little references it just in the framework of the work itself and then very different forms of filmmaking there's a two screen work there's a single screen which is a kind of new led kind of screen which looks at really at the cutting edge of technology there's, there's archive there's, clips exactly there's, there's this verite, handheld, highly personal work. Of, and it's her having her wisdom teeth treatment and, and struggling with the payment and the pain and the aftermath. So, you know, you're, you're taken in all kinds of different directions, both physically and intellectually and psychologically. And then there's another work which I didn't see at Tramway, but you saw. Yes, a very interesting combination, not moving image, but of these, he calls them extreme maquettes. He's no longer with us. It's Bodes Isaac Kingale, and he's from the DRC, and also photographs by Sami Balogi. I hope I've pronounced their names correctly. The Isaac Kingley monuments are extraordinary because they're big cardboard models of utopian visions of crazy fantasy modernist African architecture. I wish some billionaire would just build some of them. They are really, really remarkable. These big cardboard models, these maquettes. And then around them are Sami Balaji's contemporary DRC photographs of crumbling colonial buildings, of collapsing buildings, of people dressed up often in kind of you know, African clothes, but you know, surrounded by different sorts of debris and detritus. So it's very much about mixed existence now. So really interesting sort of double act of totally different work, taking us into another place, but again, detail, you know. You look at these architectural models of Bodice Isaac Kingale, and he's actually put his own name into the sort of parts of it, these little tiny details of architectural and furniture, and then the details of the real fabric of the city. So it's a very rich show at Tramway. Um, now, we, we haven't got time to go into too much detail about the Across the City thing, but I think we were both really struck by two absolute knockout shows at the Modern Institute, weren't we? Well, yes, because, of course, all the commercial galleries in Glasgow jump in as well. A double-hander, as it were, at, at Modern Institute of Luke Fowler, film work, um, paying tribute to his parents. Um, really beautiful, his, his mother's archive cards yeah. and his father's letters um, to a very close friend, family photographs, really beautiful and evocative. And either Rothschild's killer new sculptures yeah. made in lockdown, using batik and dye and multicoloured furniture and amazing array of, of, of materials in a very minimal but also maximal beautiful show. Yeah, and then like a stack of, of casts of a sort of masking tape which is, it seems to be holding the whole building up Absolutely. for instance. just it's lovely sort of brun- light touch light but, but touch. very physical work isn't it Absolutely, and these great benches that are a bit like sort of homage to Franz West, but with these amazing fabrics that she's made in various sort of elaborate processes of either interweaving or dyeing. So lots of vivid colour, jesmonite, um, rebar, iron, melted plastic, 
a really beautiful show. What was your feeling about the whole thing about being back and looking at, looking at a festival of art, essentially a kind of biennial? For me, it was the first time I've really felt this sort of sense of which I'm back in an art city. You know, up, up until now, we've been seeing art again, but that actually it's been quite regimented. You book ahead, you go into the museum. It's, quite, it's all quite restricted, whereas here we're in an art city where art is happening everywhere we go. What's great about this festival, of course, Glasgow is the most rich art city in its own right anyway, but it's the way they animate these venues. I mean, here we are in Calvin Grove having this, you know, this great big, Victorian pile animated by this wonderful subversive work that's actually riffing off a big Victorian painting or going into Barrowland and being in the, you know, the ghosts of many gigs all around you with Luke Fowler's work. So I feel like you know, just coming to Glasgow and actually immersing myself in the city, this glorious city and in its art is such a treat. Well, thank you as ever, Louisa. Thanks, Ben. Glasgow International is at venues across the city from today, the 11th of June, until the 27th of June. The online programme is at glasgowinternational.org. And finally, it's time for the work of the week. Cezanne Drawing is a huge show which has just opened at the Museum of Modern Art in New York and features 250 drawings and watercolours alongside a few of the great French artists' paintings. Samantha Friedman, Associate Curator in MoMA's Department of Drawings and Prints, is one of the show's organisers and she's chosen to talk about a page of studies including a portrait of Goya, one of Cezanne's paper sheets featuring multiple pencil drawings. It's on loan to the MoMA exhibition from a private collection in New York and you can see an image of the work on our website. Click on the podcast tab and look for this episode. Samantha, we're looking at a drawing which is actually multiple drawings. Tell us about this work. Yes, so this is one of Cezanne's study sheet drawings. And so it's a drawing um, that's actually quite impressive in scale. It's a little over 19 by 11 or 11 by 19, depending on how you're looking at it, because it spans multiple orientations, which we'll talk about. But it's one of his study sheet drawings in which he renders multiple motifs on a single sheet. Um, The motifs are sort of seemingly unrelated, but hopefully as we sort of dig in and look more closely together, we'll see that there are some relationships to be teased out between them. I mean, in in a way, it's like the most emblematic image I can think of for Cezanne and his lexicon of imagery, right? Because let's let's look first of all at the apple at the top. Right, exactly. So I do, I think it's like a little bit of a, it's almost like a trailer for his body of work on paper, right? You get these little, these sneak previews of what you're going to see in the show or what you're going to see in his body of work on paper or otherwise. Um, There is this incredibly rendered apple at the top center of the recto of the sheet, which even though it isn't sitting on a table or any, any kind of platform of any kind, it has this very lovingly rendered cast shadow. So it's um, very fully real. Um, right at the top middle of the sheet. And the whole point about his apples is that extraordinary solidity they have. And that, and again, that's very present here, isn't it? And that, and that, that subtlety of modelling, which is such a crucial thing with Cezanne's paintings, right? Exactly. And I think you can just imagine this this apple, even though it's isolated on this sheet, as part of a larger composition in which it kind of finds a solid home. But here it is sort of floating. And it has this, of course, um, incredibly round, um, curvaceous form that echoes really beautifully with another one of the motifs on the recto of that page, the kind of round dome of uh, Cezanne's bald head. Um, So a little humor there, um, as well as, of course, that association between artist and a subject for which he's so recognized. So, yes, tell us about that. You've basically got quite a lot of a self-portrait in there. It's a quite it's a quite nicely detailed self-portrait sketch, right? Yes, exactly. In fact, you know, another um, sign of the way that these study sheets have existed over time is that that self-portrait was actually extracted as an image from this sheet um, in Vollard's 1914 publication. Um, So that particular drawing as an individual drawing has had a separate life, but here it exists in relation to all the other motifs. Um, As I mentioned, it has this kind of formal rhyme or formal pun um, or play with the the roundness of the apple, of course, the connection connection between the artist and his subject, but then we kind of get another relationship between Cezanne's self-portrait and his rendering of an etching 
of a self-portrait by Goya from Los Caprichos. So we, we get the, the idea that Cezanne is sort of representing himself just as other artists of the past have represented themselves. And of course, as you say, this study sheet has multiple orientations because if we turn the sheet on, the, on its end, as it were, you have a, a bather. Yes, exactly. So, yeah, I like to think of these motifs really pinwheeling around the page, which also reminds us of the way in which Cezanne would have rendered them, Um, not continuously in one sitting, not continuously in one direction. You see him turning the page, flipping the page, folding the page. There's a crease through the center. So it's true, if we turn it kind of 180 degrees, there's a striding bather who appears upside down if we're looking at it right side up. And this is a bather figure who kind of has a hint of landscape. So again, in that idea of a, a trailer, we get all the, the genres that we're going to encounter. But this striding bather appears again and again in this form, a kind of a testament to Cezanne's incessant iteration and persistent return to certain um, poses or gestures or characters even again and again. And so in the first gallery of our exhibition alone, this striding bather appears in three other sheets, almost morphing out of unlikely other objects. And then when you get a little later on in the exhibition to a gallery devoted to the bathers, you can see this particular bather realized in watercolor in several compositions of groups of bathers among some of her friends. And do you see the form of that bather essentially remaining the same? Or is it that he's refining, consistently refining that pose, changing it, making subtle changes and ultimately ending up with a kind of ultimate version of it? Absolutely. You know, Cezanne talked again and again about the struggle of making his art. Nothing was ever easy for him. And he always pursued his motifs with great difficulty and persistence, but always admitting that it was a kind of a struggle to realize what he called his sensations, of course, right? And so we see this striding bather, when we see her in watercolor, rather than the kind of pencil line that we see as her um, boundary, we get this broken line of watercolor pigment. Um, And I think that's important to point out also in terms of the method of drawing that we see in this study sheet and also in the, the kind of technique of the watercolor Unlike other 19th century uh, draftsmen whom we might fetishize for that kind of perfect contour, um, whether it's an Ang or a Matisse later, Cezanne really always uses this searching line or this often broken line, um, which is a testament to the very act of perception, right? Nothing is kind of idealized or perfect or fully formed. It's a process. And we see that process of looking, the process of his perception, which becomes the process of our perception in those kinds of broken lines that we see in a bather like this, both on this sheet in pencil and then later in watercolour. The most delicate drawing on, on this recto is this profiled face. What's that? That profiled face seems to be a kind of reiteration of the Goya self-portrait. It appears a little bit more caricatured and less of a one-to-one copy, but it does seem to kind of share the profile and the top hat. Um, So scholars have speculated that it's a kind of a, to your point about not only repeating through iteration, but transforming seems to be a kind of a second iteration of that. So, So tell me, these multiple images, how's he using this sheet in the studio? Is it pinned up or is it put away in a drawer? What sort of role does it play in his artistic practice? It's a good question, and I'm not sure I can entirely give you the answer. His works on paper were mostly, particularly his pencil drawings, were mostly kept private. He worked daily in sketchbooks, which are also a part of the exhibition, but this sheet is far too large to have been a sketchbook sheet. So while it has this kind of sketchbook-like quality in those multiple motifs, It's actually quite an impressive sheet of paper for its size. So we do see that it's been folded, so certainly not treated preciously by him. And scholars have also dated the sheet differently, suggesting that he returns to different motifs at different times uh, on both sides of the page. So dating is notoriously difficult in Cezanne's works on paper anyway, but particularly in a study sheet like this, where we see resonances to works made at different moments, and we see motifs rendered in such different ways, that fully formed, fully modeled apple that we talked about versus that very sketchy portrait that we just discussed. So you can see him really returning to it over time. And I love that idea of the insertion of time into Cezanne's works on paper. We might think about it with the layering
coloring of watercolor where we would have to lay down a certain pigment, let it dry before laying down another layer of pigment to achieve that kind of kaleidoscopic effect. But we see it in the pencil drawings too, where he might return again and again to the same sheet. And we know that he does this in his sketchbooks too, that he's not working consecutively from page to page. He might go into one sketchbook draw on one page, flip to the back, draw again, go in the other direction of the sketchbook, go to a different sketchbook, whatever's on hand. So I have the sense from the motifs, from the multiple orientations, from the different approaches that he might have um, used a sheet like this in a similar way, almost as a, a kind of a, a record of his thinking over time. I was going to say that this idea that it's it's a sort of it's a, almost like a mental exercise as much as it is an exercise of using the hand and drawing right so there's a thinking through going on Exactly. Cezanne has this wonderful phrase that he uses in a letter. He refers to his alembic brain, um, not a word that we use in our daily parlance, but this idea of his brain as a kind of a distillery, almost, that his brain is constantly condensing different ideas. He uses it in the letter vis-a-vis language, not vis-a-vis image, but I think it's equally appropriate that we get this sense of him distilling all of these ideas, visual ideas, linguistic ideas, and kind of condensing them onto a page one image we haven't talked about on that side of the paper is is this the smallest drawing on the page which is this and also the sketchiest i'd say this reclining figure what what do you make of that well this one relates more closely to those kind of manet inspired boudoir scenes or bedroom scenes prostitutes maybe um, that we see in these kind of early narrative works that are very intimate in scale and i think are kind of a surprise for people who um, associate Cezanne maybe more with the other motifs we've discussed, the apples, the bathers, the self-portrait, certainly landscapes also. But but I think those kind of very early, almost romantic capital R narrative scenes, um, you get a hint of this. So just in keeping with that idea that this is containing all of the other things that you're you're going to see. In those works, I, I think that struggle that you talked about earlier on is the most palpable in terms of Cezanne's work. They're difficult images, aren't they? And, and paintings, indeed. Those early romantic works are they're a difficult thing to look at as much as they must have been to make, I think. Yeah, I think that's right. I think both in terms of subject matter, they're often violent, scenes of murder, but also in their facture, right? They're, he called them his literally ballsy works um, for their kind of rough facture. And he's using gouache as well as watercolor in those early narrative scenes. And so they have this much more opaque, rough quality um, to kind of match the rough subject matter that's often depicted, very unlike that translucent, transparent, luminous watercolor with which we associate him. And then on the other side of this very, very busy sheet, we have a very sparse sheet. So what's, what's the image there? Because it's quite indistinct, isn't it? Right. So that this is another one of these kind of narrative scenes that we have at the, the bottom of the fold of the recto, where you see a couple in bed and you almost are approaching it from an aerial view. And so this also would relate to those kind of early narrative um, imagined scenes. And so how can you date this? I mean, what do you estimate the date of this study sheet to be? Well, the um, the catalog resume, which is a really fantastic resource um, that's actually an online catalog resume, dates the recto of the drawing to 1877 to 80 and the verso 80 to 81. Um, so already acknowledging a kind of span on each side and then acknowledging a different span from side to side. But other earlier catalog resumes have had different dates entirely. So, you know, I think it's a really a, a kind of connoisseurial exercise if you wanted to go <laughs> through and assign different dates to each of the motifs based on their similarities to other works in the of. And can you say something about how these sketches, these drawings lead ultimately to the paintings or do they indeed lead to paintings? Is that is that a sort of narrative leap that we can take as a viewer in looking at them? Yeah, it's a good question. And I think that's a kind of common way to look at drawings, right, that they're studies for paintings. And of course, it's not entirely untrue that there are drawings that have motifs that then lead to paintings and relate to them. But I think one of the things we're trying to explore in this exhibition and to show in some of the groupings that we've brought together, which include in some cases paintings, that rather than a kind of a culminatory journey where you have a drawing or multiple drawings leading to 
a painting at the kind of the, the peak of Mont Saint-Victoire, if you will. It's much more of a an exploratory process of which a painting is equally a part. So we have a, a wall in the exhibition that's one of my favorites where you see him exploring the figure of a bather. It's a bather seen from behind holding a towel. And that little bather appears in a few drawings and then appears in a painting and then appears in a watercolor and then appears in some more drawings and another watercolor as a single figure within a group. And then a different figure of a bather in a different pose from that group composition strikes out on his own into a drawing and then maybe also into a painting and then maybe also into a watercolor. So rather than a kind of a a preparatory study for an ultimate achievement in painting, it's just a reminder that these motifs in that alembic brain are always kind of circulating and that it's a, a continuous exploration. When you think about Cezanne, you think of the bar model and the Museum of Modern Art and how central Cezanne was to that. Is the vision of Cezanne from this show, does it adhere in some way to that original vision at the founding of the Museum of Modern Art? Or are we seeing a different kind of Cezanne in this show? It's a good question. Of course, at MoMA, we're so self-conscious about our institutional history, so we can't forget the fact that Cezanne was one of the four artists in our founding exhibition, that previous generations of curators kind of held him up, particularly in a show like the late Cezanne in the 70s, where he provides a kind of a father-of-us-all narrative for artists to come. But I think not only do we not want to think about Cezanne necessarily in that way, I think we don't think about our collection that way. I don't think we don't think about our history in that way um, as a kind of a this begat that begat that story anymore. And ironically for that, I think it's something that one of those younger generation artists said about Cezanne that might help us think about him in a new way today. Um, Our friend Picasso actually said about Cezanne that it's his anxiety that is what makes him matter to us. And I think, you know, that statement in itself introduces him as really a kind of a a postmodern artist, if you will, if you'll kind of grant me that leap, that rather than a kind of a a singular figure with a singular answer and a singular way that's passed down, what we see in the drawings through, for example, that broken line that I was talking about or that searching line through that endless iteration is a kind of uncertainty, a kind of anxiety, a refusal to commit to a single answer himself. And so that's actually instructive towards us not ending up with a single story or a single tale that of which he's, you know, the progenitor. I think that that's confirmed by the fact that, and I, I see that you have an event with Judy Meritu coming up. And it, and it strikes me as really important because I had a conversation on our sister podcast, A Brush With, with Doris Salcedo, in which she said that Cezanne was one of the founding artists of her career alongside Goya interestingly he's always been an artist artist and I guess is that is would that be one of the aims of this show is that is that the that vast artist community in New York that can come to MoMA and rediscover Cezanne for themselves in a way I hope so. I certainly hope so. I mean, the the number of works and the kinds of works that are on view in this exhibition um, is really a kind of a once-in-a-generation opportunity to see these things together in these numbers and to hopefully see these relationships between them. And, uh, you know, we're always thinking of artists as one of our ideal audiences, and we, we hope to hear from them, actually, through the course of the show. We've already heard from one or two, and there's nothing more gratifying than understanding how an artist, you know, when you work on the late 19th century, the last thing you want it to be is a kind of a merely historical exercise, and there's nothing more gratifying than hearing from contemporary artists working today, learning from how Cezanne solved problems himself. Well, Samantha, thank you so much for telling us about this extraordinary drawing. It's my pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Cezanne Drawing is at the Museum of Modern Art until the 25th of September. And that's all for this episode. You can subscribe to The Art Newspaper at theartnewspaper.com. Click on the subscribe link at the top left of the page and you'll find a range of subscriptions. And do subscribe to this podcast and a brush with if you haven't already done so. Please give us a rating or review if you've enjoyed it. We're on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. The Week in Art is produced by Julia Mahalska, Amy Dawson and David Clack. And David is also the editor and sound designer. 
Thanks also to Henrietta Bentel and Daniel Hathaway, and to this week's guests, the Gorilla Girls, Richard, Louisa and Samantha, and thank you for listening. See you next week. Bye for now. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime.